I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, I want to take you back to three amazing military moments around Christmas and just before Christmas that helped shape the United States, that are part of our history, part of who we are, and frankly, in at least one case, had it not succeeded, we would not probably have become a country. So I'm going to talk a little bit about George Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night. Then I want to talk about the Battle of the Bulge and the tremendous shock in December of 1944 when most Americans really thought we were right at the edge of victory in Europe. People were talking about bringing the boys home and then boom, all of a sudden we were in the fight of our lives in Belgium and Luxembourg. And then third, I want to talk a little bit about probably the greatest campaign in the Marine Corps' history, the fight from the Chosin Reservoir in November and December of 1950, when they were decisively surprised by the Chinese communists. And I'll describe what an amazing miracle it was that they were able to succeed, and the degree to which that Christmas was so different, both in 1944 and in 1950, there was a general expectation that the war was over, that the boys were coming home. And in both cases, there was a life and death fight at a very point where nobody expected it. There are three fascinating moments 
The most important of them clearly is Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night, 1776, because I would argue had that failed, the odds were at least even money, the entire revolution would have failed. So let's start with George Washington's dilemma. In the summer of 1776, the colonies had declared their independence, and there was a huge surge of popular feeling. The British had withdrawn from Boston, and there was a sense that victory was on the way. And so by September, Washington had an army of about 30,000 men. But in a series of very tough battles against the professional British and German soldiers that the British Empire had brought to bear in Brooklyn Heights and across the island of Manhattan, Washington's army was just pounded again and again and again, often outmaneuvered. At one point, nearly 3,000 men were in a fort and had to surrender, made doubly humiliating because they had named it Fort Washington as a sign of defiance, partly against Washington's own better judgment, because he understood that losing it would be a double morale defeat. All through the fall, the Americans were retreating. They retreated first from Brooklyn. They were very fortunate to get across the East River. In fact, Washington always thought that the hand of Providence had intervened because a huge fog rolled in, enabling them with the Massachusetts boatmen to row across, and literally take virtually the entire army off of Brooklyn over to Manhattan, even though the Royal Navy was sitting in the middle of the East River. And had there not been a fog, the Royal Navy clearly would have just sunk the ships and the army would have been isolated and forced to surrender. So Washington had survived, but at each step of survival, he'd lost strength. Finally, in December of 1776, he was faced with the reality that the army's enlistments were running out. Most of the men would be free to go home about the second week of January. And given the constant pounding and the constant defeat and the retreat all the way across New Jersey, there was a sense that not many people were going to re-enlist. And furthermore, the army had many wounded. It had people who were just sick from malnutrition, from exposure. And so he dropped as an effective force from about 30,000 down to 2,500. And they were faced with, I think, the crisis of the revolution. Washington understood that and called a council of war among his generals and said to them, we have to win a victory. If we don't win a victory, the army is going to disintegrate. And in order to win a victory, I propose that we cross the river at night in the ice flows during a snowstorm, march eight or nine miles to Trenton at night, and at dawn, surprise the 800 professional German soldiers called Hessians because they're from the state of Hesse and win a victory. And that will restore morale, and people will realize that we have to be taken seriously, and we can then 
continue the war. And his generals were all opposed, every single one of them. They all thought that this was crazy. Crossing a river at night was very hard. Marching the army at night was very hard. There was a grave danger that they would be discovered and that the professional German soldiers would be ranked against them in an open fight. The professional German soldiers probably would win, leaving Washington defeated on the wrong side of the river and probably forced to surrender. So they gave him all these arguments. Now, what they didn't realize was the degree to which Washington had a mystical sense of himself. Washington, as a young man, had been asked to go as the colonial advisor with General Braddock in the expedition which began in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and moved west against the French during the French and Indian War. And Washington had tried to advise Braddock that marching in red coach down the middle of a road in a wilderness was not a very clever idea because the other side would cheat and they would use trees and they would shoot from behind the trees while your guys would be out in the open. And Braddock shushed him and basically explained that Washington just didn't understand how professional Continental armies fought. So they finally end up in a huge ambush and Braddock is killed very early in the battle. And it's exactly what Washington had warned about. The French and the Indians were behind trees shooting at the British. The British were getting very demoralized and were on the edge of literally falling apart as a fighting force. And here comes Washington. Now, he's a colonial and isn't really in the chain of command the way the British Imperial Army thought of itself. But he took command because somebody had to. And he's physically huge. 6'2", but a big 6'2", and I always tell people if you played him nowadays, he'd be played by an NFL offensive tackle because he's just physically so large for his time. It's a time when the average male is about 5'6". Furthermore, he was considered the best horseman in the colonies, and he rode big horses because he was a big man. So he's towering above everybody else. And here's Washington out here riding around, rallying the troops, organizing the retreat, stopping the French and the Indians, and getting shot at. In fact, he is shot at so often that he has two horses killed under him and then springs off to the side and isn't hurt by him. He has four bullet holes in his coat, but he's unharmed. About a decade later, he's at a conference with Indians, and an Indian chief says to him, you know, we all could see you. I mean, you were right there in the middle of the battle up on that big horse, and we all shot at you. He said, I personally shot at you 13 times. So I don't know what your future is, but obviously your God has some role for you. So this is the person who his generals are advising. He has a deep sense of faith. He has a deep sense of doing what's necessary. He has absolutely no fear. And he makes a point to them that's pretty decisive. He said, look, if we don't win a victory, the British are going to win because our army is going to fall apart. When our army falls apart, every person in this room is going to be hung as a traitor. So the good news is we have nothing to lose because you're either going to cross the river and win or you're going to get hung. So you might as well cross the river and win. So with that kind of 
injunction, they got ready to move. Now, Washington was actually a very intelligent student of human psychology. He knew that the optimistic attitude of the summer, the tone which had been caught in Thomas Paine's famous pamphlet, Common Sense, which is a very uplifting, positive, wonderful kind of sense of the future, that that wasn't working because, frankly, they were getting the tar beaten out of him. And so he had taken Payne, who had enlisted as a rifleman, and he said to Payne, we don't need you as a rifleman, we need you as a writer. I am taking you out of the ranks. I am sending you to Philadelphia. Write a pamphlet which will help us understand what we're living through. Why is this so much harder? And so Payne does. He writes The Crisis, which begins, these are the times that try men's souls and explains how hard it's going to be, and that wresting liberty from the British is like wresting salvation from hell, and that you should expect to have to fight for it, but in the end, you'll get there. Well, Washington has his officers reading Payne's brand new pamphlet published for this campaign. As the men are getting in the boats at night to cross the river, they are listening to Payne's wonderful patriotic exhortation to courage, to persistence. And so the army, with great determination, crosses the river, and it then marches. Now, the march took longer than they thought it would because there was one extra ravine, which back then, they didn't have horses. So they're manhandling the cannon that they have with them. So you have to lower them down into the ravine, get them across the stream, take them back up the other side of the ravine. All this is taking hours longer. Meanwhile, and part of what makes this such a miraculous night, a Christmas night that changes history, a group of Virginia rebels had ridden by and fired at Trenton and then run away because they were just guerrillas. They weren't a regular organized force. They thought they were being helpful because they were annoying the Hessians. They ran into Washington, who was horrified. He had hoped that the Germans were all going to be asleep. And here they had aroused them at about three o'clock in the morning. They'd all piled out of their various houses. They'd stood guard. They checked to see what was going on. And of course, the Virginians had then left. Well, ironically, that actually helped Washington because all the Hessians got really wet and really cold standing out there at three o'clock in the morning. So they all went back in, took off their uniforms, went back to bed and tried to get warm. Meanwhile, Washington's running about two hours behind, but he gets there since they had driven off the Americans. They assumed everything was fine. And this is the other, I think, very interesting part of this remarkable Christmas night achievement. In Europe, armies didn't fight in snowstorms. In fact, they tried not to fight in the winter at all if they could help it. Because European armies didn't trust their men. They had to keep them very close order so that none of them could desert. They didn't trust their common sense, so they had to be in close order so that the sergeants could tell them when to fire and when to reload. And they didn't want to be out someplace where you couldn't see very far, you couldn't keep order, and frankly, where you were going to be physically miserable. But they were up against an American army that were all deer hunters. They all loved going out in the middle of the winter they all loved hunting. They were all very comfortable in the woods. None of them minded the snowstorm all that much. 
particularly because, again, another one of those small pieces that make this such a miracle, the snowstorm was coming from the north so that it was at the back of the Americans and in the face of the Hessians. So the Americans just marched along. And now they were not very well clothed. Out of the 2,500 men that Washington had left, about one third of them did not have boots and had wrapped their feet in burlap bags. These guys were really proving how committed they were to freedom because they were in pain for the whole march. So they arrive at Trenton. The Germans still don't know they're there. Trenton's a very small village at that time. And it basically has just two cross streets. So if you line your cannon upright, you can dominate both streets. And they're all sleeping in private homes and they can't get out of the houses because the Americans now have total control of the field of fire. Ultimately, after a very short skirmish, the Germans, 800 of them, surrender. And Washington then shows he's a very clever man. He grabs them and he runs like crazy to get back across the river because he knows the main British army's coming. And of course, if they had caught him, they would have destroyed his army. They get across the river with their prisoners, about 750 prisoners out of 800. One American had been killed. It was a huge victory. And within about three weeks, there are 15,000 volunteers because victory brings enthusiasts. And the revolution continued. Had Washington failed to fight the battle, had he failed to win the battle, I think the odds are overwhelming that the American Revolution would have died sometime in January or February 1777. So that particular Christmas is at the very center of the rise of America. And without it, we probably would not be a country today. I find it truly a miracle and one that most Americans, I think, took that way. And Washington himself said, Anybody who doubts that Providence was on our side literally does not have any idea what the fight was like. So that's part of why you had this deep sense that God was on our side, because they kept getting in these fights where they couldn't figure out any other way for it to have succeeded, except to have had some kind of divine intervention. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The second battle I want to chat about occurs 168 years later when the Americans and the British and their allies, the Canadians, the Poles, the Free French, have been sweeping across Europe after landing successfully on June 6th at Normandy. And it feels like the Germans are collapsing. They're gradually getting driven by the Soviet army. They suffered enormous casualties over the course of the war. And there's a general expectation that the war could be over, if not by Christmas, certainly shortly thereafter. And everybody was kind of relaxed. In fact, General Eisenhower, the commander of Allied forces, had deliberately shifted some of his most badly beaten up divisions and his most inexperienced divisions to an area in the Ardennes forest. One of the great ironies of history, this is the area where the German army cut through in 1940 to outflank the French and win the decisive defeat of France and driving the British off the continent. So we knew it was usable. It was also an area which Eisenhower and Patton, when they were much younger, had actually driven around on vacation because they fully expected a second world war. They didn't think the Germans were done. And yet, there was this general feeling that in the middle of winter, it was not likely to be a problem. Furthermore, the German army had not launched a winter offensive since Frederick the Great in the 1770s. And so there was a general belief that the Germans didn't launch winter offensives. wasn't how they operated. And furthermore, they were under such enormous pressure in Italy, in France, in Russia, that they weren't in a position really to pull together the troops. Well, that was exactly the calculus that Adolf Hitler had. He intuited that the Allies would be weak along the line of the Ardennes Forest, and that he had a sense that you could really drive a wedge between the British armies to the north, the American armies to the south, and drive it all the way to Antwerp and Rotterdam and seize control of the supplies. And so he scraped together every combat-capable force he could find, secretly moved all of them, and then had a huge piece of luck. The weather turned bad. The Allies relied very heavily on air power. 
we dominated the air. We had fighter bombers that were able to take out German tanks. We used all sorts of capabilities against the German army, including, frankly, scouting and looking for what they were doing. And suddenly the weather was bad. So now you have, all of a sudden, starting on December 16, 1944, a German offensive against relatively weak divisions that were actually placed there to rest and to refit. They were not prepared for a major battle. They didn't expect a major battle. They were looking forward within less than two weeks to celebrating Christmas. And boom, they're in the fight of their lives. The Germans start to break through. They penetrate pretty deeply into the American positions and begin to split the Americans badly enough that Eisenhower takes the American units on the northern side of the bulge, what was called the bulge because if you look at it on a map, it's a bulge from the east Germany towards the Atlantic Ocean. And as they're driving into this, they are separating the Americans from the north so that they can't be controlled very easily by General Bradley and the American Army Group. And so Eisenhower infuriates some of his Americans by taking those divisions and giving them to Montgomery to manage because Montgomery's on the northern side of the bulge. Meanwhile, there are some units that had really locked down and decided that they would fight. And it's a fascinating moment. There were paratroopers who were isolated in the town of Bastogne. Bastogne mattered because it was a really important crossroads. And at that point, the Germans decided that they would see if they could get the Americans to surrender. So they sent a note in to the American commander, whose answer was one word, nuts, which of course was classically American, went all over the place. People heard about it rapidly in an age before the internet, it still spread with amazing speed. And it automatically raised morale. It's who we were. We weren't gonna just fold because some Germans were on offense. We're gonna figure out a way to beat them. Meanwhile, on the Southern side, Patton, at the very earliest moment, looked up and said, you know, I'm pretty sure this is a German offensive. So Patton turned to his third army team and said, I want you to design two plans. We're gonna take our army, which is currently facing east, and we're gonna pivot it 90 degrees so it faces north. And I wanna know whether to go up line A or go up line B, I want to have a one-word code, so if I call you, I can say either A or B, and you'll then execute exactly that campaign. Patton then goes to the first grade meeting, which was held at Verdun, and it's very famous because when all the generals got together, remember now, they're all shocked. The war that they thought was about to come to a close has suddenly exploded into a huge German offensive. The weather is terrible. They've lost their biggest asset, their air power. They have relatively untrained troops and relatively exhausted troops fighting for their lives in an area that they frankly thought was safe. And they can see that in theory, if the Germans could keep the offensive up, they could get to the great supply depots and they could really tear apart the entire Allied offensive. So the key generals all arrive. And as they sit down at the table, in what I think is one of the great moments of his career, Eisenhower looks at all of them and says, gentlemen, 
we will have no frowns at this meeting. We will have only smiles. The Germans have come out in the open and they've given us a chance to destroy them. So we should be happy. Now that was such a change for these guys who had walked in very defensive, some of them depressed, very, very worried. And all of a sudden here's like sounding totally self-confident, smiling and happy. And he turns and he says, you know, what can you guys do for me? And Patton says, well, I can launch an offensive within 48 hours. And Ike turns and says, George, come on, get serious. What can you really do for me? And he says, well, I have my guys planning it. And I just need to know, do you want this line on the map or this line on the map? You tell me which one you want, I'll call them. And they will start pivoting in the next 30 minutes. And he was as good as his word. Everybody was shocked. He showed enormous aggressiveness. Again, think about this. You're taking an entire army that is focused on going east, and they're pivoting it so it can drive straight north. And as they're doing that, they're doing it in the snowstorm because they still don't have air power. Patton himself is out there pushing them, shoving them, leading them, getting the maximum speed out of them. And the result is, all of a sudden, the Germans are on defense. They can't sustain their offensive. They don't have enough forces. And the Americans have responded so rapidly that in the end, they're simply going to collapse. Now, we suffered about 75,000 casualties that's dead and wounded during the battle. The Germans lost somewhere between 80 and 100,000 men. But the fact was, by Christmas, we were really rolling and it just accelerated. And by the end of January, we recaptured all of the land that they had temporarily taken. We were back on offense and we were moving towards the victory that would occur in May when the Germans finally surrendered. But there was a period there just before Christmas when the American people and the British people were very, very worried. And then in an almost miraculous way, it turned into a great allied victory instead of a Nazi victory. And people once again were moving forward. And while we didn't get the war over by Christmas, we did get it over by early summer. And in May, the Germans surrendered, which was an enormous achievement. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The third great military moment in the Christmas season was, I think, maybe the greatest single fight the Marine Corps has ever had, and is a remarkable contrast to what was happening to the 8th Army. What had happened was the North Koreans had attacked on June 25, 1950, and had driven south. They'd come very close to conquering all of South Korea. And we intervened. We only stopped them. And then in a brilliant maneuver, General MacArthur leapfrogged all the way from the bottom of Korea. You can see this if you pull up a map. We were pushed back to the very bottom of Korea around the town of Pusan. And instead of fighting our way back north, MacArthur used the great amphibious capability we had developed in World War II and leapfrogged all the way up to the port of Incheon, which is very close to the 39th parallel, and is the port of the city of Seoul, Korea, the capital. And so we suddenly, in one brilliant stroke, threatened to cut off the entire North Korean army, which collapsed in, during the retreat, was ultimately badly defeated. And we then drove it north and decided that we would liberate all of Korea. They'd, they'd started this war. We were going to make sure that they truly lost it. I have a good friend who actually got all the way up to the Yalu River and was standing there looking across the river at China and told me many years later that he realized in retrospect that there were already Chinese troops watching him as he stood at the Yalu. So we were then driving up two sides of the peninsula Korea, very, very rocky, very mountainous. And on the western side, the United States 8th Army was driving north with its Republic of Korea units and with other elements of the United Nations forces, the Turks and the British and others. On the eastern side, an army unit and a very large Marine contingent were driving up. And MacArthur had talked about the boys will be home by Christmas. So you have this whole sense that, once again, people just as they were in 1944, people were letting their guard down, they were relaxing, was very clear that the North Korean army had been destroyed and was incapable of offering very much more resistance. What we didn't realize was that the Chinese felt enormously threatened at having American forces in North Korea, so threatened that they were prepared to intervene in the war, which 
all of our intelligence people said they would not do. And what we didn't appreciate then, it's well worth thinking about as we think about China today. We, to an extraordinary degree, underestimated the capacity of the Chinese Communist Army. This is an army which had fought a civil war before World War II, stopped the civil war to fight the Japanese. And then when the Japanese were defeated, went back to fighting the civil war again, and only won the civil war and occupied all of China except for the island of Taiwan. So this was a very competent, very experienced military force. And it was a force which was used to operating under very difficult circumstances. They infiltrated at least 250,000 troops at night, all the way down the northern part of the peninsula, with nobody finding out. We had complete air superiority. We had airplanes overhead all day, every day. And all day, every day, they hid. That's when they slept. And ultimately, had a dramatic impact. A real lesson for Americans, I think, both in the Battle of the Bulge and in the Chinese offensive in Korea in 1950, is to not underestimate your opponents. Your opponent gets to be smart. Your opponent gets to be clever. Your opponent gets to be courageous. And so it's very important to remember some painful lessons. Here you had General MacArthur, who had been extraordinarily successful in World War II and had been remarkably successful in the initial amphibious landings at Incheon. And I think it was humorous. I think his ego got the better of him. People told him for two months that there was a problem. There was increasing evidence that the Chinese were in North Korea, and he just plain wouldn't listen because it didn't fit his preconceived notion of what was going on. Well, the result was that the American 8th Army was way overextended into the north, all the way up towards the Yalu, and was not prepared to defend itself because it had an all-out offensive, and it had kind of an attitude of, hey, this is about done. The North Koreans are whipped. The Chinese won't come in, and maybe we'll start shipping people home by Christmas. Meanwhile, on the eastern side of the mountains, the Marines in particular had a very tough-minded attitude. And this may have come in part because they had fought the Japanese in the Pacific in World War II. And they understood how suddenly you could be ambushed and how suddenly things could become extraordinarily violent. And so there was great pressure from Tokyo for the Marines to overextend themselves and to be as incapable of defense as the 8th Army. And the Marine leaders simply wouldn't do it. They said flatly, we are not going to allow our forces to get beyond their ability to defend themselves. And they kept bringing up supplies and reorganizing and moving very carefully and very cautiously. Well, the result was when suddenly the Chinese came literally boiling out of the mountains and out of the forest, an enormous shock. This was a very bitter cold weather. I mean, Korea can be extraordinarily cold in November, December, January. And so you had, for example, people who were killed in their sleeping bags because they had been so cold that they had taken the risk of actually zipping up their bag, which meant they couldn't get out in time when there was a sudden surprise attack. You had tremendous number of 
Chinese. They outnumbered the Marines by a very substantial amount. And they were very courageous. They were very well trained. And they were very prepared to die if necessary to achieve their goals. The Marines very rapidly reorganized into a defensive force. But and there are several brilliant studies of this. One called Hold Back the Night, which is a great story written at the time about what it was like to fight your way out. There was a movie entitled Retreat Hell, which came from a famous quote from a Marine officer who said, we're not retreating, we're fighting in a new direction. Because literally, the Chinese had surrounded the entire Marine unit and was were literally trying to stop them from getting back to the ocean. So they had to not only have a fighting retreat, they had to have a fighting offensive where they were fighting their way to the southeast to try to get to the harbor where the U.S. Navy and the Allied forces could withdraw once they got there. But they were on a very narrow road that was totally frozen. They were up against opponents who were doing everything they could to stop them. They were fighting extraordinarily cold weather. And you can imagine the attitude of the soldiers and the Marines who had been told, oh, yeah, the war is really over. You can relax. You're going to be going home by Christmas. And the bitterness they felt towards the commanders in Tokyo in particular, in MacArthur headquarters, who were simply totally wrong and out of touch with reality. The result was, I think, one of the greatest American combat stories in many ways very, very parallel to the retreat of the 10,000 in Central Asia in the Greek era. These were folks who, if they were going to survive, they were going to have to fight their way through the opponents and claw their way to the sea. They did it. And it was an extraordinary victory, but it was a costly, painful victory. An amazing number of young Americans were killed. Others suffered very severe frostbite. Many were wounded. Frankly, it was probably all preventable if, in fact, General MacArthur and his team had simply taken notice. They'd had two months of steadily increased warnings. And if they had pulled the American forces back into defensive positions, almost none of this would have happened. But you can imagine the shock in America, just as in the Battle of the Bulge, when all of a sudden families who thought that Timmy or Johnny were coming home realized that Timmy or Johnny were fighting for their lives in desperately cold circumstances and had a pretty fair chance of not making it. I think that it galvanized the country, it focused the country, it put us into a very different posture in Korea and a much grim determination to be effective. And I know when my dad served in Korea in 53, it was seen as a very tough war. There's a memorial to the Korean War on the Mall which I always visit and I recommend to you highly, of an infantry unit in the kind of gear that they wore in that particular period. And it's just very sobering to me, thinking about what they went through and how they went through. I wanted to share, because Christmas, which is a time of good cheer, it's a time of salvation, it's a time of generosity, it's a time of being with family and friends. There are many wonderful Christmas stories and there are many wonderful Christmas movies. But I think it's also useful to remember that in the history of the United States, in the struggle to remain free, in the willingness to do what is necessary so that America can survive, that there have been Christmases when we have sacrificed everything. There have been Christmases when brave men and women 
stood without flinching and did their job. And that we should remember too, that we're able to celebrate this Christmas in freedom because of the many Americans over the years who sacrificed to make us free and then to keep us free. And I hope as you and your family celebrate Hanukkah or celebrate Christmas, that you'll take just a moment to include in your prayers all the young Americans who this Christmas will be scattered across the planet, working hard, risking their lives, trying to make sure you're both safe and free. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Kendall. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.